This morning's scripture reading is taken from the 24th chapter of Luke's gospel. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood before them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the leaven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen laying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they had saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of the joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. This morning we're in week three now of this series we're calling The Basics looking at the basic building blocks, the foundational beliefs of the Christian faith. So in week one, we talked about God, the existence of God, uh, that the world was made by someone. It's about as basic as it gets. Last week, we talked about the Bible, uh, tried to make headway and making arguments about uh, the Bible being the word of God, not just a human book, but a, a book written by God, a supernatural book. And then this week, we've come to Jesus. And I realize we're going to need to take two weeks on Jesus. We actually take 52 weeks a year on Jesus, but um, two weeks specifically on Jesus because uh, there are two big things you have to believe about Jesus to, to be a Christian. You have to believe that he died for you, and you have to believe that he rose again. And so we're going to take those out of uh, chronological order. We're going to talk about uh, the resurrection first, and then next week we'll talk about the crucifixion, the cross, and the meaning of the cross and it's funny, you know, the resurrection, it kind of gets like quarantined into Easter. Uh, so there's a lot of churches, and, and our church has been guilty of, of a similar imbalance. Plenty of churches in the U.S., at least, I don't know, internationally, that uh, will we'll talk about the cross 52 Sundays a year. They'll make some reference to the cross 52 Sundays a year. And they talk about the resurrection maybe five, six, seven times a year. Uh, and we've been guilty of that imbalance, too, as I said. So uh, I want to correct that this morning a little bit, at least, and talking about the resurrection on a non-Easter Sunday. I've got four points, four points about the resurrection, and they're all uh, complete sentences, so we'll just uh, take them as we go. We'll put them on the screen so you can follow along. So four things about the resurrection. First, if you believe in God, then you already believe in the supernatural. Number one, first point this morning, if you believe in God, then you already believe in the supernatural. And the reason we're starting here is because this is where uh, people get hung up. They get hung up even before they start to look into it, even before they examine the evidence, because they think, well, you know, a, a guy gets executed and then all of a sudden he's not executed, you know, so I, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in the supernatural. I believe in science. 
And in response to that, I'd say, well, I, I do too. I believe in science too. But believing in science does not preclude the supernatural. These are, these are two different things. So what science studies, by definition, is things you can touch and see and look at in the lab. That's, that's its purview. That's, that's the field. Well, the supernatural is stuff outside of that. And so for science to say it's not in our field, therefore it doesn't exist, is, is really kind of bizarre and very prideful. It's like if a, a painter said, well, I don't believe in sculpting. I don't believe in music. I only believe in my field. Or a historian said there's no such thing as literature. The supernatural, by definition, is outside the, the realm of science. The question is, is it real? Is it real? Because what science says is only stuff you can touch and see and observe is real. That's a claim. There's no proof. It's just a claim that they make. It's not real unless you can touch it and see it and observe it. What most people from most of history have believed is that there's some stuff that's real even though you can't touch it and even though you can't see it and even though you can't observe it and even science itself would have to admit that there's stuff even just in the physical universe that we can't see that's real. So we didn't discover the atom. We couldn't actually see the atom until 1800. We didn't discover electrons until 1900. We didn't discover quarks until 1967. We couldn't see this stuff. It's real. The question is, might there be some other stuff in the universe that we can't see, but we just don't have the equipment yet able to see it? That's what it is with the supernatural. There's stuff that's there. It's there. You just can't see it because you don't have the right equipment. So there's that story with uh, Balaam riding a donkey in the Old Testament, and he's going down this road, and the donkey won't move. The donkey just stops. So Balaam starts beating the donkey, you know, stupid donkey, trying to get the donkey to move. Finally, the donkey just lays down in the middle of the road, and then it says the Lord opens Balaam's eyes, and he sees that there's this angel standing in the middle of the road. The donkey could see it, but he couldn't see it. Or there's that, that other story with Elisha where he and his servant are trapped in the city. There's an army all around the city, and the, the servant is saying, oh, no, what are we going to do? We're surrounded. You know, how are we going to get out of this? And Elisha says, what do you mean? What, do, what are you worried about? And he says, there's, there's more on our side than on their side. And the servant says, what are you talking about? And Elisha prays. He says, Lord, open his eyes. And he opens his eyes, and he sees that the hills, so they're surrounded by the enemy. The enemy is surrounded by the armies of God. There's these angels riding on the chariots of fire all around the enemy army. And you have to, if you believe in God, so the point was, if you believe in God, then you already believe in the supernatural. You have to believe that at least those things are possible if you believe in God. Because the whole idea of there being a God is there's something beyond nature. That's what we talked about in week one. This world is here. It's here. Nobody can deny that. I mean, I guess you can. You know, ask Keanu Reeves. This was like a, a mind-bending concept for people that never thought about it before when The Matrix came out. Um, but that's, a, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is... Uh, <laughs> What we're talking about is this world is here, and so you have to have some explanation for that. And what we said in week one is either it sprang into being on its own by accident. This world is here, and it's all there is, and it just popped, or somebody made it. And if somebody made it, that means there's something outside of this world. Maybe you don't even believe it's God, a force, a power, something outside of this world. What is that? Super nature, above nature, the supernatural. If you believe in God, you already believe 
in the supernatural. And so this, this move that people make of just trying to discount it from the beginning without even looking at the evidence, evidence because, well, it's, it's a, a miracle. Well, if God, if the author of the laws of nature wants to break the laws of nature, he can. That's the first point. If you believe in God, then you already believe in the supernatural. Point number two, and this one's going to be real brief, but I just want to make sure to mention this because I think it's interesting. Ancient people were just as skeptical as modern people. Number two, ancient people were just as skeptical as modern people. So, like I said, most people that have ever lived have believed in the supernatural. That doesn't mean they're not surprised by it when it, it pops up. It doesn't mean you're expecting it. And you're skeptical. At first, you know, you're, it's fine. It's fine if your first reaction to something that's apparently supernatural is to look for a natural explanation. Everybody does that. Uh, so you see with the, in the passage this morning, uh, you know, even though when they do see the angel, the angel says, remember he told you this was going to happen? He's kind of like uh, insulting them and, and taking them to task. But he did. Jesus did. He told them that, uh, that, three days, that on the third day he was going to rise again. And even though he had said that, even though he had said to them, on the third day I'm going to rise again, Still, they go and find this empty tomb on the third day, and immediately they're looking for natural explanations. It says that in another gospel, they assume that somebody must have stolen the body. And uh, when the, the women finally did come to believe, it says they went back to the men, and their words, did you hear that line? It said their words seemed to the men like nonsense, like nonsense. So we fall into this thinking of like, oh, well, everybody back then was so gullible. No, they knew how things worked, and, and they were not expecting the supernatural, and they were looking for a natural explanation. They were skeptical. The story of Jesus, obviously, is supernatural from the beginning. You know, you've even got the, the virgin birth. And there, too, it's this problem of, well, that's not how things normally happen. You know, people don't just get pregnant without ever having had sex. But that's exactly what Mary says. You know, we think of these people as just believing anything. The angel shows up. She's frightened. The angel says, you're going to have a child. And Mary says, no, I'm not, because I've never slept with anybody. And the angel's response to that is, well, Mary, nothing is impossible with God. And then she thinks, oh, yeah, right. If he wrote the laws of nature, he can break the laws of nature in individual instances. He can, there can be exceptions. But that was hard for them, too. So that's the second thing. Ancient people were just as skeptical as modern people. We went real quick for those two, and we're going to spend a long time on the third one. So just review. If you believe in God, you already believe in the supernatural. Two, ancient people were just as skeptical as modern people. Number three, and we'll spend about half of our time here. Number three, the resurrection probably happened. Resurrection probably happened. Now, uh, don't misunderstand me. To be a Christian, you obviously have to believe that it, it did happen. You can't believe that it, it probably happened. So I'm not saying that I believe that it probably happened. I believe it certainly happened. But uh, for anybody, this third point is for anybody, without faith even, I think that there's a pretty good claim that the resurrection probably happened, no matter what. So uh, I've been teaching Reese, our, our oldest, she's almost nine, about probability. Uh, and the other day, she was supposed to uh, be cleaning up, picking up everything on the floor. And so she said, Dad, I'm all done. And there was this uh, toy, or I can't remember what it was, something laying on the floor right next to this bin that she was supposed to put it in. And so I said, well, what about that? And she said, well, I put that away. I put that, I put that in the bin. I know I put that in the bin. And, she, and she's so you know, self-righteous in her certainty about everything. 
which of course she got from her mom. And um, <laughs> so I said to her, I said, okay, you put it in the bin. I said, Reese, uh, tell me, which of these is more probable? Which is more likely? Is it more likely that you went to put it into the bin and you thought you put it into the bin and you it meant to put it in the bin, but it kind of slipped out as you put it in and it landed there on the floor? Or is it more likely that you put it in the bin and then some strong wind or something within the last two minutes came and, and took it out of the bin? And she said, well, yeah, you're right. It's, it's more probable. It's more likely that the first of those happened. So probability is a really powerful thing because it enables us to know with a certain degree of certainty things we can't know for sure. Because I don't know. I mean, maybe there was a wind, you know, maybe... Maybe her sister, her three-year-old sister, came along and just was screwing with her and pulled it out. And, but probably not. Probably she thought she put it away, and she didn't. And so with the resurrection, you know, it's this probability game. And at first, people think probability cuts against the resurrection because they look at the two choices, two options. Either this guy really rose from the dead, which never happens and requires me to, to believe in the supernatural, or uh, it's just a legend that was made up by his followers. And they say, well, of those two possibilities, they, they judge the latter to be far more probable. It's more probably a legend. The problem with that is that this particular legend, these, this particular account that we have of the resurrection, there are so many things about the way it's written, about the way it was preserved, about the way that it was received, that make this idea that it was made up extremely far-fetched. So let's talk about that for a couple minutes. In the first place, uh, it, you, what you can't say is that they intended it to be a legend all along. You know, that it was supposed to be kind of this inspiring account, and then later people started to take it literally. We know historically that that's not true. People took it literally from the very beginning. But then even in the text itself, everything about the text shows that it was intended, at least, to be taken as fact, as history, as journalism. So one quick thing, for example, you saw in the passage this morning, Luke mentions Joanna. Joanna is a very minor character in this uh, Bible. She only appears here. Why does he bring her up? Well, because she was married to uh, this administrator in Herod's government. So she was like a known person in that time. Or the other place you see this, it's all through the Gospels, but there's a place uh, in the Gospel of Mark where Mark is talking about Simon of Cyrene. And he says, Simon of Cyrene, uh, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why does he say that? Why does he say the father of Alexander and Rufus? The reason was because people still knew Alexander and Rufus. He's like, you know, the dad of those guys you know. Richard Bauckham is this uh, professor of New Testament at Cambridge University. He points out that these references to names are the ancient way of footnoting. This makes it like an academic document. It's intended to be taken as true and to be checked out. You go and, and you ask these people and say, is this how it really happened? So it can't be that it's a legend. It can't be that they meant it to be taken as fiction. Your next possibility is they were intentionally trying to deceive. You know, they were, they were faking it. It's a forgery, essentially. They, they gave it all these things to make it look like a historical document, to make it look like they were trying to tell the truth, but they were trying to fake it. And this, again, is just incredibly far-fetched. For one thing, this would be the first instance we have of this, of trying to uh, propagate this mass lie in print. We don't have anything like this in, in history before this. 
And even today, it's so rare. It's so rare that people actually try to get away with making something off, up and passing it off as true. It happens occasionally. So you got you know a news anchor that'll embellish a little bit, or a memoir that uh, is fake, or a reporter that that has been saying things that aren't true. But a couple of things they a almost always get caught, and b they just hardly ever do it. Which goes back to the footnoting thing. You can check this out. You, you're gonna get found out eventually. So there's the issue of it's never happened before in history up until this point. But then there's the issue of why is it received the way it's received? If it is fake, if it's clear that Jesus didn't rise from the dead and you've got all these people, again, these are, we have the pieces of paper. These date to within a couple of decades of the events themselves. So all the players are still alive. So you have this problem of nobody debunks it and it, it, it gains traction, but not only does it gain traction, I mean, gaining traction is like the understatement of the century. Because what you have happen is just based on these texts, just based on these accounts, you have Christianity going from having no power at all, being this little sect of poor people and slaves, to within a few hundred years taking over the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire all along is trying to, to smash it out. You know, you've got the most powerful empire on earth trying to annihilate this movement, and it just keeps growing. We need to put that in context. The rise of Christianity, the growth of Christianity has to be put in context. I think people think of it like, well, you know, there's all these different religions, and lots of religions have caught on through the years, so what's the big deal that Christianity uh, caught on? You know, what does that say? Well, uh, there's a couple of things wrong with that way of thinking. One, uh, yes, there are a lot of religions, but most of them nobody belongs to. So uh, you can put 98% of the globe in four categories. Uh, the globe population is a, a roughly a third Christian, roughly a quarter Muslim, then roughly a quarter Eastern religions, Hinduism and, and Buddhism, and then roughly 15% uh, secular uh, non-adherents. Now, it doesn't mean 15% atheists, but 15% that, that don't affiliate with the religion. So then you've only got three big buckets in, on the religion side of the ledger. You've got 85 to 15 uh, religious versus non. And of the 85%, you've only got three big buckets. With Eastern religion, there's like no conversion. So the, the size of Eastern religion is it's 99% in a handful of far Eastern countries. And it has not grown through conversion. It's grown through uh, people being born. It's indigenous. So then that leaves Christianity and Islam. Uh, both have grown through conversion. With Islam, and I mean no offense to Islam by saying this, but it's just a historical fact, that conversion happened after military conquest. Doesn't mean Islam was the aggressor, sometimes they were attacked first, and it's not to say that Islam is bad. All ancient religions or ancient groups did this. You know, Rome, same thing. They would conquer a land and then convert the people. Fine, so it's, it's not, nothing against Islam. It's, Islam is normal, but that's what happened. That's a historical fact. The war was won, and then the people were converted. And then you've got Christianity. You've got Christianity where they, they don't win ever. They don't win any battle because they refuse to fight. And they just get slaughtered. I mean, they get literally slaughtered. The people are just annihilated, and, and they just lay down. They just lay down their lives. They're silent before their executioners. wonder where they got that idea. And yet, by losing somehow, the way that, that uh, Justin, one of the church fathers, puts it, 
He said, it's almost like the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Because every time you had somebody executed, every time you had a group of Christians killed, every time you had a church buried, that church pops back up again stronger. They were enacting, reenacting the very story that they claim to believe, and within a few hundred years, without firing a single shot, Christianity takes over the most powerful empire on earth. And then from there, things get dicey. You know, I'm not saying Christianity hasn't done screwed up things, uh, but that's all post the rise of Christianity. That's all, you know, the Middle Ages and the Crusades and that kind of thing. I'm talking about the early days. And the early days, it somehow explodes just by people refusing to fight, by people refusing to to fight back and just land down their lives. And it raises this question of why would they do this if they thought maybe it might not be true? It goes to this, this issue of motives. You know, with the person that fakes the memoir or fakes the, the report as a journalist, well, there their motives are pretty clear. They want to get promoted. They want to make money. They want to get high ratings. You know, they got to write something for their job, and so they make something up. There you get it. But here, it doesn't make sense. You make this thing up so that you can get killed for saying that you believe it? The motive structure is impossible to decipher. The last-ditch effort you can make to try to salvage your theory that it's not true is you can say, well, maybe, okay, so it can't be a legend. It can't be, it just cannot be that they intentionally made this up to deceive, that they knew it was false and they wrote it down into trying to deceive. So your last ditch attempt, which is actually the craziest of all, is to say maybe they believed it was true and they, they just were deluded. You know, they, they, they thought they had seen a risen Christ. They convinced themselves that they had seen in Christ, and, and that's just the craziest one of all, to, to, that all these people would have this mass hallucination. Talk to any psychologist or psychiatrist, there's actually no such thing as mass hallucinations. It's never happened. It doesn't exist. It's not a thing, which means that you've got to do something with these documents, these documents that are there that have one way or another completely changed the world. The biggest thing that ever happened, it, let's say you don't believe in the, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Fine. The biggest thing that ever happened in Western history is the publication of the New Testament. What is this book? You have to wrestle with the document. And this is why I've said before, it's easier to believe it than to not believe it. You know, the, the example I've used in the past is it's kind of like how on July 20th, 1969, something crazy happened. One of two really crazy things happened. Either a man landed on the moon for the first time, or NASA pulled off this ingenious hoax. But the one thing we know for sure is that the, the video's there, you know, because every person living, every person alive on July 20th, 1969, saw the video. So where did the video come from? Either somebody really went to the moon, or it was faked. And you start with the first one, somebody going to the moon, especially back then, especially in 1969, it's kind of hard to believe, honestly, that somebody, you know, way up there, you know, they flew on a rocket ship, and he's on the moon right now. You know, you wave to him. It's hard to believe. And so you say, well, maybe they faked it. And that, that feels like more rational somehow, like more cynical, more skeptical to say, I think they faked it. 
Well, if you get into these websites, and you know, there's plenty of them, or these ridiculous documentaries, and all the things that would have had to happen for them to pull this off, it is so much harder to believe. It takes so much more faith to believe in the hoax than it does to believe in the real thing. And it's like that with the resurrection. The, the crazy conspiracy theory isn't that he rose from the dead. The crazy conspiracy theory is that he didn't. And that somehow this group of uneducated fishermen pulled off the greatest con in human history and turned the world upside down. I just can't get there. I can't get myself to believe something that far-fetched. So that's the third point, and like I said, most of our time spent there. The resurrection probably happened, even if you don't believe it, even if you're not there as a statement of faith, just in terms of probability, wrestle with that. Fourth and finally this morning, the resurrection is a preview of your future. Number four, the resurrection is a preview of your future. And this gets to the significance of the resurrection, because I think you know, after the first three points, it's kind of like, well, let's say it's true, even if it was true, that this guy came back to life 2,000 years ago, why do I care? You know, why, why does this matter at all? And that's what uh, people in the first century said. Again, nothing new. Nothing that we're saying today that people weren't already saying then. And the Corinthians wrote to Paul and they said, does it really matter whether he came back to life or not? And Paul said, yeah, it, it matters. Of course it matters. Because what happened to him is what's going to happen to each one of us. The phrase he uses as he says, Christ was the, the first fruits. He's talking about like a harvest. The first fruits of those who are going to be raised from the dead. And so it's not just this one-off event. It's not like uh, to prove he was God, exclamation point, come back from the dead, and it's just a Jesus is Superman kind of thing. It's, it's a template. It's a preview of what's going to happen to every one of us. Paul says everybody's going to be raised like he was raised, which means that when you look at his body, when you look at his resurrected body, you're looking at your own future. And what his body tells us is that the next life, the life after this one, life after death, is going to be every bit as real and tangible and physical as this life. That's what a, a big chunk of the passage is about. You know, he says, uh, touch me, feel me. Does, does a ghost have flesh and blood? Because at first they think it's an apparition. It's a, they think it's the spirit of Jesus. And he says, it's not the spirit of Jesus. It's me. I'm, I'm here. And then he, he goes even further. You know, there's that, that part that seems totally out of place. He's He's seeing his disciples for the very first time after he's been raised from the dead. It's just like this big moment, and he's like, oh, do you have anything to eat? It's just like, are you really that hungry? Like, why can't that wait like a few minutes just after we close this scene? You know, it kind of like, it kind of butts in. He says, do you have anything to eat? And they're like, well, yeah. And so it says he takes a, he eats a piece of broiled fish, which is just, again, too much detail for a legend. You know, why is it broiled fish? But the point is, he, he can eat. He's like, watch me. I, I'm eating. And, you know, the, you don't see it, like, going down, you know, like you do in the, in the movies. He says, I'm here. I'm really here. It's my body. It's, I've come back, but it's still me, and the scars are still there, and his, his hands and his side. What that means is that the kingdom of heaven, the next life, is going to be every bit as physical if not more physical, if not more real than this one. And we're going to have bodies just like we have now, 
except those bodies will, will actually work. You know, the, the thing about our, our current bodies is they're, they're very glitchy. There's, there's like a few years from 18 to 25 where they sort of do what they're supposed to do, and then it's just all downhill from there. And the resurrection says, no, you're going to get a new body. You're not going to be a disembodied soul. You're going to get a new body. History is going to end differently than you thought it was going to end. And there is such widespread misunderstanding about this point. I, I don't know how this caught on, but this myth caught on that what Christians believe is that when you die, if you're like a, a good person in one understanding or if you say the right magic prayer about Jesus in another understanding, when you die, your soul goes up to heaven. And it's this, this wonderful place of you know, angels and, and harps and clouds. And forget the, the harps and the clouds. That sounds like hell. But um, <laughs> as far as your soul going up to heaven, the Bible never teaches that. The Bible says heaven comes down. At the end of time, heaven comes down. And when I say the resurrection is a preview of your future, what the Bible says is everybody's coming back up regardless of what you believe. Regardless of what you believe, everybody's coming back up on the day of the Lord, the day Christ comes back, the day that heaven comes down. And then you're going to have to face him. It says every knee will bow and every tongue confess and what you did with him in this life, how you treated him in this life, I can't tell you all the particulars. All I can tell you is it matters. It matters for the next life. Every knee will bow eventually. And that gets to the downside of the resurrection. You know, I mean, the upside is it's really nice to uh, know that you're, this isn't, the death isn't the end, you know? And everybody uh, has that in their heart. You know, God says in Ecclesiastes, it says God has put eternity in the hearts of men. So everybody knows that this life shouldn't be all there is and that there should be more and you know, see your loved ones again, that sort of thing. So there's a nice side to it, a feel-good side of it. But there's also a downside. There's a downside to the resurrection, which means that if Jesus really is who he said he was, if he is God in the flesh, then you have to worship him. You know, go back to Rome. Why is Rome trying to kill Christianity? Why does Rome care? Because the Christians had a saying. The saying was, Jesus is Lord. The problem was, Rome had a saying. Rome's saying was, Caesar is Lord. They were directly at loggerheads. It was a direct challenge to the authority and the supremacy of the empires that said, we've we got to do something about this. Well, it's the same today. Nobody says, Caesar is Lord. But for us, it's, you know, I. I am Lord. I'm master of my own life. I'm captain of my own ship. I don't bow the knee to anybody. I run my own life. And the resurrection seriously challenges that. You know, you have to change everything. It's like, uh, sort of like going from being single to being married, you know, where before you're just thinking about yourself, and then now all of a sudden you got this other person that you have to think about for everything. You have to think about what they want, except with, with Christianity, that, that other person always outranks you and always gets the final word. So I guess for a man, it's exactly like being married. <laughs> you, have to, you have to lay down. You have to lay down your life for him just like he laid down his life for you. That's, that's the downside. That's hard. That's hard to give up control. But the upside is you get something a lot better than a spouse. 
something a lot better than a friend, something a lot better than a parent even. You get this connection with the God who made you, the God who died for you, the God who lives. Let's pray. Father, you see how skeptical we are. You see how hard a time we have believing in things that we can't see. But we know that some of the most real things there are are things that we can't see. And so I ask this morning that you would speak to us we're here, we're sitting in your presence. We've come to think about you and to, to look at you and look at your word. I ask that even just in the moments that are left in this service, you'd speak to us. You'd give us a glimmer of hope and give us a faith, even faith just as small as a mustard seed, to believe that you've done what you've said you've done on our behalf. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.